Hello, everybody. I am Roger Bodie here on the Manor Podcast. I am joined with my best friend and co-host, Michael Hamilton. How are you doing today, Michael? Doing pretty good. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. So the goal of this podcast is going to be to give very high-level and direct strategic advice when it comes to the great game of flesh and blood. Michael has had phenomenal results and for a while was the highest-rated professional flesh and blood rated elo player in the world he's since uh fallen off you know he had he didn't win a tournament for once and he's much lower rated now probably second or third i haven't looked i'm actually in sixth now oh geez i might need to i might need to look actually into getting a new co-host now um but we'll finish this one out just for the fun of it okay well i'm glad you'll keep me for this one yeah it would be too much of a hassle to come up with a brand new name and everything like that. Uh, the MNR podcast, as it says there, or Manor, as we're going to call it, is for Mike and Roger. Um, so, as I said at the introduction, my name is Roger Bodie. Um, I'm also a competitive flesh and blood player, but I am not as accomplished as Michael Hamilton, given as I have not won uh, or top aided every single calling I've played in. I've only top 16 a couple and scrubbed one. So, or did I top 32 one? I don't know. I've done okay at a couple, but I'm just uh, not as world-renowned yet. But I'll get there. I'll get there. We'll see how France goes. I believe. Thanks. So, like I said before, the goal is going to be giving our takes on a week-to-week basis on what's happening in the state of flesh and blood, our thoughts and opinions on where the metagame sits, where it's going, and maybe even some hot takes as far as where the design levels are, what power levels are, and what players are overlooking at the current game state. So we're happy to have you, and we're looking forward to having a very successful podcast here. Okay, Michael. So I think today's topic is going to be uh, the Pro Tour, the Pro Tour that I did not play in. Um, Yeah. You were at home having, well, not at home, at the hospital. Yeah, at the hospital. Uh, The birth of my firstborn son, uh, was probably a bit more important, but in hindsight, it was, it was close. It could have gone either way, considering he was uh, delivered on Monday, so I could have played in the tournament. It would have gone just fine. My, my well, wife... actually, a lot of flights got delayed that were scheduled to come back I would Sunday have, night. I would have booked a car. I would have been on the car plan the moment I would have seen those delays for another day or two. I would have been like, let's just rent the shittiest car, whatever car we can get, and I'll just drive back, and if I get pulled over going 200 miles per hour on the side of the road, I'll, I'll explain the whole situation to the officer, and he'd be like, sorry, I'm sorry for pulling you over, sir, and he would have just let me go. I'm sure. But anyways. Anyway. <laughs> so the Pro Tour that you played in, what did you think about it at a high level? What was your overall impression of, of the level of competition, how it was uh, went for you? Just, you know, give it to me in a nutshell. It felt very similar to a calling. Uh, the, the players were good. I guess, like, you missed the first few rounds where some players, like, in callings in the first few rounds, sometimes you play against... Um, Axis Dorinthia? You, you play against less competitive stuff some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think there was less than that at the Pro Tour than there would be at callings. But a lot of the times... Uh, even in like later day one of callings, like the players you're playing against are quite good and have a pretty good understanding of 
their heroes and matchups and stuff. And uh, it felt a similar caliber of players at the Pro Tour. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I think just given how new the game of Flesh and Blood is, um, it's reasonable that not everybody's going to be uh, a crusher like you right off the bat. Some people still need to find their way uh, and start learning the overall heuristics that make a great cardboard slinger. Um, But it definitely makes sense that it's still a little bit higher than your average calling. And I think overall, as time moves on, uh, callings, pro tours, worlds, whatever, even your local armories, the player uh, skill cap will keep getting higher over time. So that's definitely something for everybody to be aware of and think about as they progress. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad you agree with that uh, high-level assessment. So uh, if we get into more specifics here, what uh, what hero did you play? I played Chain. Um, I had you played you played the twenty health hero. <laughs> Chain bound by shadows. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That that makes more sense. When I I thought you were handicapping yourself by playing the young hero in constructed. <laughs> no, okay. uh, though I have heard that someone did do that at uh, ProQuest, not at the Pro Tour. Well. It would have been even more impressive if they would have won that progress. But please go on. How was how would how did Chain Bound by His Shadows do for you? Uh, the deck performed very well. My build was a little bit different than um, the like normal traditional chain decks, I guess. Um, well, what in your mind is a normal traditional chain deck? I guess Cody Williams' list from the calling is kind of my reference point. I feel like that's um, where a lot of people start from. Um, I guess Pablo's is probably the default list now, and my list was quite a bit off his as well. Uh, in what way? Um, mainly I cut Shadow Puppetry and added Void Wraith. Well, we'll just start right <laughs> off with the bat with there. So cutting Shadow Puppetry, I mean, that's a powerful Majestic, one of the premier cards uh shadow actions that most chain players uh utilize in their decks so what was it that led you away from such a powerful and staple of the deck yeah so basically with the non-attack actions and chain the main reason that you're playing them is to get go again because you need lots of sources of go again to clear your blood debt when you flip over uh, as you flip over multiple blood debt cards um, in the later shackles. But the problem I had with Shadow Puppetry specifically was um, early in the game, when you don't flip over all those extra cards, it's not really worth spending a card to gain one damage and an action point. And then if you aren't wanting to play it because it's not worth a card to gain one damage and an action point, then uh, it only blocks for two. So in those aggro matchups especially, it's quite bad in the early turns. That makes sense. I, w- I was also finding that in the control matchups where you do want that effect of getting of well the g- matches that go long where you want that effect of getting the extra action point um shadow puppetry doesn't have any real way you can use it without breaking the combat chain or using creepers with it so um when the premier control deck is playing rampart of the ram's head you get punished pretty severely for breaking the combat chain and you don't put any merit at all for the extra card that you could potentially banish because in Shane, that could actually be a, 
a card that you, you effectively have drawn for the turn um, or set up for a later turn. Yeah, I I think it is. I think there is some value in it. Um, I but, think it's probably like worth a third of hitting with like a snatch or something where the effect is just drawing a card. Um, all right, all right. That makes sense. And then uh, Void Wraith. So why such like a... That's just a common clunky card. Um, not generally something that's very impressive. So why why put that card in your deck? Yeah, so as I was playing Chain, one of the best blood deck cards, in my opinion, was Ghostly Visit. You flip it over, it doesn't have any conditions to play. It's just one for four. You can give it go again with your ability, with chain, Chain's ability. And then um, it has a neat trick with Mavrin Skies, where you can play Mavrin Skies and then make a shackle and then attack with Ghostly Visit and then attack with a Runeblade card and then attack with Rosetta Thorn. Um, and you don't... The Ghostly Visit, since it's not a Runeblade action, it doesn't use up the Mavrin Skies go again when you do that so you can use multiple instances of go again without breaking the combat chain and i found that void wraith just felt like more copies of ghostly visit in a lot of spots and sometimes even better because there were quite a few turns where you just hold one blue or one blue and one other card going into your turn and then you flip over uh, a blood a blood deck card it was like the ideal one to hit off a one or two card hand because you could just make a shackle play the Void Wraith and swing Rosetta Thorn and turn a one-card hand into seven damage. Okay. On top of that, it also blocks for three, which is very You do important. love three blocks. I do. Blocking for um, three is very high on Michael Hamilton's checklist of how he evaluates cards. Yeah, specifically in the aggro matchups as chain, you have inevitability over the other aggro decks. As long as they can't fatigue you, then... The later the game goes, the better it is for you because you're just banishing more cards, which is essentially worth drawing more cards in chain. So, so your assessment uh, was that just straight up chain was the fastest, most efficient, best aggro deck in the format. Um, I wouldn't say it's the fastest because um, your shackle zero, shackle one turns usually are like pretty low damage output compared to most other aggro heroes. Like, uh, I guess Briar's the main other yeah it's interesting because I, I i figured you would still be on par with you know briar in terms of what you're doing and how you're handling things so I, I i couldn't think of another hero that could potentially be faster than uh chain in this meta aside from uh i guess we'll get to that in a minute the high roll kano turns but <laughs> yeah um so i think you're slower than other aggro decks on low shackle counts which is why um Specifically why I think blocking is important, because when the game goes longer, your turns are just going to be much bigger than their turns when you have the higher shackle count. So, Well, you just have important. access to more cards, so the ability to play more cards usually uh, converts to more damage. Yes. Hmm, that's interesting. Who knew? So anyways, uh, so that makes sense why you picked Chain for the event. Um, were there any other notable differences? Um, I know little minimalism's uh, pretty controversial sometimes between ch Chain players, uh, specifically uh, whether the value you get off of the playing the little and minimalisms in your deck is worth the downside of having to shuffle your deck and re-randomize it to offset your pitch stacking. So... Uh, what are your thoughts on Belittle and Benoism? Yeah, I, I actually think the uh, 
the worry about shuffling is kind of overblown. In the fatigue matchups, if you use belittle and shuffle on like the first few turns of the game, it doesn't really hurt you. Um, you can still set up a pretty effective pitch stack for your later turns. And it's kind of like, uh, it's really difficult to set up a pitch stack from turn one anyway, because you don't know how many art of wars you're going to draw. So that is going to mess up your offset anyway. Well, not only art of wars, um, but weren't you also running Tome of Fandel? Yes, but I did not keep it in against the fatigue decks. All right. That makes sense. Um, I'm ju- I was just pointing to other effects that potentially could um, skew how many cards you've drawn over the course of a game. I, I always thought that was um, one of the biggest barriers for me when I was playing Chain was effectively keeping track of just how many cards um, I've gone through in the deck while playing mm-hmm. it and calculating what shackle turns are going to hit with uh, what cycle of the deck when we're going very long with the deck. Um, and I think it's... Uh, really what separates the mediocre to good chain players from the you know top tier pro tour winning chains as we saw yeah i agree with that okay um so anything else you want to say about chain before we move on to the meta as a whole for the pro tour i think i could talk about chain for a really long time so there's nothing specific that i want to get in here so we can go ahead and move on okay so uh, what matchup were you specifically hoping to get paired against every round of the Pro Tour? Um, what did you think your best matchup was? Casino Starvo. Why was that? I just really liked the plan of being able to block, and they didn't. for being an aggressive deck, they don't actually output that much damage. A lot of their power is through their disruption. And... A lot of their disruption doesn't actually stop you from like shackling and progressing your game plan. So if they hit you with even a fused oak and old, and then you can still make your shackle and get push a few damage through, it wasn't that bad for you. And then the big turn when you had basically my game plan was setting up an art of war plus a belittle and having one really big turn where you push through a bunch of damage and then kind of put them on the back foot. And the turn that you want to do that, even if they came at you with a very disruptive on hit, like a Spinal Crush, or like I said earlier, an Oak and Old, or Crush the Weak is another one, you had the Husk to cover up like the important on hit turn. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, Husk is an extremely powerful defensive option. It's basically like having your own um, unmovable on command just as a piece of uh, equipment, which is pretty insane when you think about it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so how many times in the Pro Tour did you get uh, paired against Casino Starvo? At least once, I know. <laughs> it was a lot. I believe it was eight. No, six. Six. I think I played against eight Starvos, and six of them were Casino. Oh, and how many times did you beat your uh, best matchup? Uh, I only beat it four of the six times. Four out of six. I guess that's a pretty good win rate still. Uh, so what went wrong in the two that you lost, though? Um, one of them, my opponent was able to um, basically hold a pulse, the Ice Lightning Pulse, plus an Evergreen to enable Starvo every turn, and they played 
four Oaken Olds while holding those two cards. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, did you call a judge? Um, they're only allowed to register three Oaken Olds in a deck, Michael. I, I don't know how you let that one slip by you, but... Um... Oh, they've played uh, Pulse of Candle Hold to return two on one of the turns. I think the fourth, or the third Oaken Old was... Uh, so they played the first two Oaken Olds, and then on turn two and turn three, they played the first two Oaken Olds. And then on turn four, they pulsed Pulse of Candle Holded. They used Pulse of Candle Hold to put the two Oaken Olds back on top of their deck, activated Crown of Seeds to draw the Oaken Old, draw the first one, and then they played that one as the third Oaken Old. And then the following turn, they drew the fourth one. They weren't actually able to play it that following turn, so they arsenaled it. And then they played it the turn after that, and that was enough to finish me off. Oh, yeah. I mean, poor Oganolds uh, is a lot for anybody to go through, no matter how many uh, Carrion Husks they're playing. Maybe if you got to play two Carrion Husks, you probably would have been okay, but you, they had four Oganolds, you had one Carrion Husk. The math checks out why you would lose that game. That still only accounts for one of your Casino Starboat losses. What happened to the other one? Did you get hit by five Oganold six? No. The other one, I think I only got hit by one Oganold. Ah. And it was a really... Um, it was a really tough game. It ended up kind of close, and I think I made a couple of small decisions wrong. Um, there was one turn that they did the Starvo reveal and played the Oak and Old for 11, and I was at around 30 life, I believe, and I had to choose whether to husk that or wait, and my hand wasn't that good, so if I used my husk and I came back with like a pretty medium hand, I uh, don't think I would have been in great shape that game. Um, so I ended up choosing not to husk it. And um, I didn't block because my hand was two reds and two blues. And I really wanted to make sure I had a blue in my hand because I had one or two cards in Blood Debt that I needed to clear. And um, I got hit by the Oaken So I got hit by the Oaken Old, and the two random cards that were put on bottom were my two blues. It's always how it goes. It's always how it goes. You always so, say, if I keep any of these cards in my hand, as long as it's not just the red or just the card that doesn't do literal anything, you'll be just fine. But it's always that one. It's always the one you don't want that you get left over. That's just how it goes. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I knew they had the pulse of the, the pump spell one. Uh, it's not Eisenloft. Yeah, it's there's Eisenloft and Candlehold, and then there's the the purpley one. Volthaven. Volthaven, yeah, the one Lexi's I, from. How could we forget our everyone's favorite hero, Lexi's hometown? So I also knew they had Pulse of Volthaven that turn that they okidled me, and I think that maybe should have been enough to shift my decision the other way because the following turn, after I had my kind of weak turn and I took a little bit of blood debt damage, that put me in range where when they had a dominated, or when they activated Starvo and just attacked for nine with a dominated, I believe it was an evergreen, and then they used the pulse on the hammer for eight, I was forced to husk that turn anyway because I was going to take uh, enough damage to put me below 13. Okay. All right. So but I still. think a couple things went wrong for me that game. I didn't have any super strong hands, and then I also think that close decision I might have made uh, – I might have made the wrong choice. Okay, it was all variants, and you got robbed. Got it. Okay, uh, <laughs> moving on. What did you do? We want to talk about the big fiery, uh, flaming, 
uh, elephant in the room in the form of Kano. I guess there weren't that many elephants in the room, but there were still enough that it had an insane conversion rate, I believe, uh, like four of seven or five of seven, uh, making day two and then um, two into top eight. So, And a third in the top 16. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you could have beaten those Kano players, or do you feel like you would have had to change a couple of cards in order to have a better matchup for that consideration honestly kano wasn't really a hero i was paying uh a lot of respect to in my testing i had an even fold in my deck which i think is a pretty powerful card in that matchup especially against the decks that are very reliant on wildfire on aether wildfire it does say arcane barrier <laughs> it says spellblade oh my bad my bad and then i had a nolverin robe also as kind of like i had one slot that i didn't really need for any of my other matchups and i thought there was a chance that people would bring kano um that said i really don't know how the matchup plays out i still haven't played against it so fair enough i don't know if i was lucky or they were lucky to not run into (laughs) the matchup what is really interesting moving forward for you know pro tours or these kind of smaller events is even if you say well okay well um let's say we're playing chain or briar or a different more aggressively slanted deck um you could put the pieces of arcane barrier in your list but you know as we saw with zach against his mate uh matchup against uh kano on, on camera over the weekend you still might not have enough blues just because your deck just isn't very blue heavy. So if you have the arcane barrier, but not enough resources to dump into it, it's really not helping you mitigate the, the oncoming Inferno that is Kano. Um, that is true. That is true. My chain deck, I guess, uh, I could have brought this up when we were talking about my chain deck specifically, but I did have a much higher blue count than I believe is typical in chainless i was playing 25 or 26 blues into every matchup well that makes sense given that you're playing you know more high cost of cards like void wraith as well mm-hmm. but um i was just thinking more so along the lines of like um briar um or even um uh, lexi to an extent where you know a lot of the heroes just aren't playing you know enough blues or or resources in order to both, you know, have functional turns um, and prevent the arcane barrier. There's a real tension between uh, using your resources to mitigate the arcane damage that just isn't present um, when just through normal combat damage. Because if you're red, you know, um, I can't think of a red thing that blocks for three. Uh, snatch only blocks for two. But your your red snatch blocks for two physical defense, but it only blocks one arcane damage no matter what. It's a lot easier to get some defensive value out of your more aggressively slanted cards through physical damage than it is through arcane damage. Yeah, that's definitely true, uh, especially with the decks that are like higher on their red counts because... Um, they just don't usually need the resources. The, usually the, yeah, usually the, if if you can't use the red, then you can just block for three with it. But against the arcane damage, red suddenly only block for one, and that's only if you have the arcane barrier available too. And ultimately, blocking for one isn't doing very much against Kano. I mean, 
blocking one damage out of the 45 billion trillion damage that they're throwing at you when they're comboing off isn't saving you at the end of the day. Well, I, I was rounding up a little bit, given, but... What, one damage actually can prevent a reasonable amount of damage if you prevent one damage on their Aether Wildfire and then they play one more attack or one more action that does arcane damage followed by Blazing Aether. That one damage you prevented off the Aether Wildfire is actually worth four life. So it's not... Right. It's not nothing. It's not nothing, but it's not enough to... I mean, four life out of, you know, 30-plus damage turns still isn't exactly where you want to be, but I get what you're saying. All right. um, So we cover Chain and Kano now. Um, Were there any other heroes that were uh, surprising to you in their um, prevalency at the Pro Tour? Um, there was a reasonable amount of prism. Yeah, that um, was that was really interesting to me. And it seemed like basically all the prisms were doing different things, so it didn't seem like there was like a uniform build they all came to. But there were there was a lot of representation for prism. And surprisingly, they didn't get blown out of the room either. They had a reasonable day two conversion rate, and I think a couple almost made it into top eight as well, right? I think there was one prism in the top eight. All right, all right. Well, I mean, even... Then, I, I was going to say, and then uh, I think 10th place was also a prism, 10th or 11th. Yeah, so it, it's just interesting to me, considering I was almost ready to just write that hero off completely at the end of the day, just because um, I thought it would just struggle so much into the meta, but that obviously wasn't the case. Um, do you think there is anything particularly that we overlooked as far as, you know, the prism's ability to still compete in the meta? Yeah, so I think there were a couple things. I think, one, we kind of thought that Chain and Starva would have equal shares of the metagame, and uh, that wasn't what showed up at the Pro Tour. There was significantly more Starva than there was Chain. And then the other thing is that the Prism-Chain matchup is usually quite good for Chain, but you have to really know what you're doing in the matchup. Otherwise, you risk getting fatigued or... Um, or even herald it out if you don't block correctly against them. Because uh, Prism kind of has the same thing as Starva, where uh, she can play two different plans against Chain. And um, if the Chain doesn't know what you're doing and makes a couple of mistakes, that matchup's not as bad for Prism as people envisioned it to be, or we specifically envisioned it to be. That makes sense. Um, I think it's interesting also how dynamic prism uh, can be where I think it's very easy to write off the Herald plan sometimes just because it's kind of a more high variance route and it does take away from the more consistent and traditional builds of the aura plan Um, but when it's going there's no denying how powerful and above rates the light illusionist uh, prism cards are they have a lot of them are both above rate, and then they have built-in go-again off the Prism's weapon. Uh, Luminaris. Luminaris, yes. Yeah, that one I knew. Um, they actually are quite strong, and then they have their pretty threatening on hit triggers too, so if you can just play your Heralds and they aren't ever getting popped, you're getting a very good deal. And then um, I guess we'll, we'll just swing back over, bring a full circle, and talk about Bravo, star of the show. Um, 
you know, its continued dominance and it winning the uh, calling at the Pro Tour over the weekend um, shows that, you know, maybe LSS actually should have taken more aggressive measures as far as toning it down or living legend sooner. Do you think that would have been the right call for the weekend or were you happy it was around? Um, I think, I think we all wish that it would have been a little bit smaller, uh, percent of the field than it ended up being. But overall, I feel like the deck was, uh, nerfed enough that it wasn't problematically powerful. It didn't end up winning the pro tour. And a lot of people felt comfortable with their matchup into Starvo going into the weekend, or a lot of different heroes did. Like Prism, uh, Chain, and Kano all seemed like they had reasonable game against Star of the Show. And I think that's like enough for a healthy metagame, in my opinion. I suppose that's fair. It still wasn't you know overwhelmingly uh, dominant as we were seeing before. It was still just an uh, above-rate tier one deck, but other decks were able to compete with it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I agree. So after the Pro Tour, we've been seeing that, you know, Chain has been dominating over the past couple of weeks and not starve start the show anymore. Um, so that kind of speaks to how uh, Chain being able to just husk the more high rolly turns of Casino Starvo, you know, once happening per game and then aggro them out from there um, is shaping out in the meta. Um, do you think that's... Uh, a fair assessment or is there something still that you know players are overlooking yeah i still think that chain is favored into the starvo matchup husk being the main reason why uh, just shutting down uh a big turn almost single-handedly gives chain uh a lot of a lot of control in the matchup and i think that i also think that part of it might be people are a little bit tired of playing starvo as well so there might be less starvo entering ProQuest. That's just entirely speculation. I haven't looked at the data on that yet. You haven't gone to the ProQuest and asked how the players are you tired of Starbo? I have not. Actually, I've been at home in bed recovering oh. since, since I uh, I got COVID after, or somewhere during my New Jersey trip. Yeah. Well, I haven't been out and about either. I've been too busy changing dirty diapers, so um, I feel you there. Um, but I do think there's a, a lot of merit still to maybe Starvo's trying to shift back to, um, I believe there was a player named, um, um, Michael Hamilton and he won the calling Indianapolis with a a more controlly style of, uh, Starvo. Do you think there's going to be more merit to going back to that more controlling style and just trying to fatigue out Jane instead of racing him? Yeah, I think that's a. I think that's actually the better approach in the matchup. Um, if your deck is built in a way that you can do that, which basically means you need to play a lot of block threes and you need to play a lot of block threes that are not non-attack actions, because if you block with a non-attack action, then it turns on chains and bird existences. Um, but I do believe that uh, if you're playing twelve defense reactions and some of the big blue uh, the big blue guardian attacks um, that you have a good shot at just fatiguing the chain. And then what, ab- I guess if we just talk about the inverted existences uh, for a second, that was really only an issue because Starvo 
or typically in the controlling builds, Dill only played Arcane Barrier 1. But given the off chance that Akano shows up to the lo local meta um, and still also needing the ability to sometimes uh, block an additional source of Arcane damage from uh, Chain, do you think there's any merit to playing a second source of um, Arcane Barrier in the matchup? Maybe the Gloves or... Yeah, probably the gloves because the shield's still too good, either version, to give up in that matchup. Yeah, I think that's very reasonable. I think um, if that's an approach that you wanted to take from the fatigue side, I haven't tested it myself enough to know that if Arcane Barrier 2 is better than that three extra points of block you'd be giving up on your gloves, but I think it's definitely reasonable. And there's still this uh, weird thing that can happen with Rosetta Thorn. Uh, a few weeks ago, you told me that blew my mind is that if you're the control uh, Starbo and you're looking to prevent the two arcane damage off of Rosetta Thorn with uh, your two sources of arcane barrier or with crown and a source of arcane barrier in an attempt to prevent the arcane damage for uh, uh, shoes, creepers. spellbound creepers. Thank you very much. Um, Rosetta Thorn can actually target any player so a chain can just target themselves and deal two arcane damage to their own stupid face in order to keep their spellbound creepers alive for an additional turn and there's nothing you can do about it um it's obviously not ideal for the chain player but given just how powerful uh spellbound creepers are in the matchup it's definitely something that i think uh could come up reasonably if uh you know both players were you know, sufficiently skilled with their decks. Yeah, it definitely is something that Chain can do is to play around uh, Arcane Barrier 2 or even Crown plus Barrier 1 is target themselves with the Arcane damage. But still, I think there's still merit to playing the additional source of Arcane Barrier, not only for Invert Existence, but also uh, Rosetta Thorn and um, Vexing Malice. Um, so there's actually quite a bit of instances of the higher points of Arcane damage in the deck overall. Um, and if you're going on the straight fatigue route, even just preventing those one or two extra chip damage that can happen in the early turns can go a long way to actually winning the game. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, jumping back to Invert Existence, the chain usually uses the Invert Existences on a turn that's going to be putting out a lot of damage on top of the Invert Existences, so it's not always feasible to hold the cards in your hand to prevent the invert even if you have the two arcane barrier but i think the points you made about vexing malice and rosetta thorn is definitely another strong reason that you consider playing nolrin 2 against chain right ultimately it's uh do you think you'll get uh more than three uh damage mitigation out of the second piece of null rune or the for sure three uh points of physical block you'll get with just the mopey gloves yeah, those ones. Look at you. I've played some Guardian in my days. Yeah, you have. And I'm, I'm a little sleep-deprived, so specific card names might not be my forte at the moment. But strategy. I think I still got that somewhere rattling around up here. So if you had to play in a ProQuest this weekend, what would you play? I would play Chain Bound by Shadows. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, were there any changes you would make to your list, though, for a more uh, less pro-tour-y uh, format? Um, I don't think so. You could look at playing a little bit more Kano tech. Um, we haven't seen I'm Kano not... pop up in the ProQuest so far, though. 
Yeah, I think that Kano is both very hard to play and very vulnerable to uh, high null rune, high spell void. Um, if people expect it, they can definitely tech for Kano. That's fair. Cause him some issues. So I there... think part of its success at the Pro Tour was how unexpected it was. That's fair. But even, you know, Kano aside, it's interesting to me that you you don't think there's anything you could tech for your deck to maybe prepare for the mirror a little bit better, or do you feel sufficiently uh, well-prepared for the chain mirror? Uh, going into the Pro Tour, the two matchups I tested the most were Starvo and Chain, so I feel like I'm pretty happy with my configuration in both of those matchups, and I actually only played one mirror at the Pro Tour, so um, did you I win haven't... It? I, I did. 100% win rate. Look at that. <laughs> but I... Uh... I haven't come up with any, or I didn't, that wasn't like enough for me to have any takeaways about things I'd want to change for the mirror. That makes sense. If I was going to play in a ProQuest this weekend, I would probably play the more controlling version of Bravo, star of the show. Um, I guess my biggest concern would still be running into uh, Prism here or there, but I think with um, Chain being so dominant and usually typically pretty good against uh, the Prism builds, um, as long as I dodged it in the early rounds, I feel like I could, you know, have a reasonable shot to get to a top eight where, uh, it would be a more favorable matchups for me. Yeah, definitely. And even if you play against prism once you get, you can take a loss and still make top eight at every pro quest. No, I want to go undefeated. I only accept my PTI if I lose zero matches, Michael. <laughs> Otherwise I'll just give it away. I'll just scoop in the finals again. Well, that's uh, that's sure a choice you can make. I'm just I'm just that competitive, man. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. <laughs> I, I okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, I think that just about wraps up this podcast. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, thank you for bearing with us on this first cast. It's definitely been an adventure for us, so we hope you appreciated it. Um, any parting words from the wonderful mind of Michael Hamilton before we go? Yeah. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, and I look forward to next time. Couldn't have said it better myself. See you around everybody. Bye. <laughs>